Okay, we are working our way through the book of Ezekiel. We're going to start skipping some portions now coming up here. We're going to do a couple of passages tonight. Then we're going to be skipping over a few things because there is a certain amount of repetition as Ezekiel is told to prophesy about Jerusalem in particular. That's the hot spot because uh, Jerusalem is under siege by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he's got a lot to say about that. We're going to start with some of that. But he's going to talk an awful lot for quite a few chapters about uh, the judgment of God on his people. He will also step off and talk about the nations around them. Because when God poured his judgment on Jerusalem, uh, the people that lived around them thought, hey, that's great. They got what they deserved. <laughs> and so God will also turn his judgmental eye towards that. But there's some really wonderful things coming up ahead over the next few weeks as we take a couple of the high points from Ezekiel. We're in chapter 14 tonight. And again, uh, this next passage has always stuck in my mind as a real extraordinary package. It really helps you think about who God is and who we are. And uh, it starts with a, a little bit of an uh, issue that comes up, chapter 14. Let's begin and look at it and see what's going on. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now the elders of Israel, the leaders, and they don't appear to be the leaders that he was exiled with. They appear to have come from some other place and they're seeking out Ezekiel because uh, there are several prophets that are prominent. Jeremiah back in Jerusalem, nobody likes him. They threw him in a well. <laughs> uh, Daniel is prominent but they can't get to Daniel. He's up with the king of Babylon. But then Ezekiel is well known as his strange ways acting things out have been spread around and his message has been spread around and now some of the elders come some of the leaders of Israel from some other spot come to him and they kind of sit with him and their point is I guess that they you would think I should say you would think that they want advice let's see what Ezekiel's got to say uh, but it's not what the Thing is at all. Here we go. Verse 2. The word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? So come to find out, these fellows came looking for Ezekiel and your first impression, they want advice. They don't want advice at all. They're not interested in advice. That's the last thing they want. <laughs> Sometimes people say, I want to talk to you. And the last thing they want is advice. They don't want advice. That's not what they're interested in. That's what, what these fellows are interested in. They have come and they look impressive. They're the leaders of the country, uh, probably in the family of David. And they've come, and what is it they want if they don't want advice? If they're not interested in advice, God says, he says, why are they coming to ask me anything? I don't want to talk to them. I'm not going to talk to them. So why not? Because he says inside, in their hearts, there's idols right inside of them. They've worshipped anything but God, and now they've come to Ezekiel. What's the point of it? Well, they want approval, maybe. They want to go in and sit with Ezekiel, have Ezekiel tell them something, and they'll go, we got the word of the Lord. So you can trust us. And all of the people of the whole nation are quite sure that Jerusalem will not fall to the king of Babylon. Everybody except for Ezekiel. 
and Jeremiah, all right? But they don't want their country to fall and be carried off in the ruins, which is what happens whenever uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, wherever he goes, he just tears a place apart, takes everybody captive, takes the cream of the crop, and builds his government out of the best people he can find. So he says, he says, these men, they look good and they act, may, may act like they're important, but I'm not, I'm not going to say anything to them. Verse 4, therefore speak unto them and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel has set us up idols in his heart, putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. And so you can't fool God for one second. You can put on all your finest clothes and say, we're here to hear the word of the Lord, and you don't have any intention to listen to what God says. It's very possible. And God is never fooled by it. You can fool me any day. It's easy enough to fool me. But you can never fool God. And so if you say, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that, and you're going to come and sit, you, God, not fooled for a second. And so these men don't fool him for a minute. And he says, as a matter of fact, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to deal with them according to their idols. Verse 5, that I might take the house of Israel in their own heart as they are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent, turn yourself from your idols, turn your faces away from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger, the sojourners in Israel which separated himself from me, set us up his idols heart, put us a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire him concerning me, I the Lord will answer him myself. All right, I'm not going to ask my prophets to tell them. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to say what's got to be said. I'm going to do to them what they deserve if these people who have an idol. And remember our definition of an idol. Anything that's more fascinating to you than God himself. Whatever that might be, whatever consumes your attention, whatever you focus on, whatever you think of when you have free time to think, that may be your idol. And so here, uh, God says, they didn't fool me when they came in and said, we want to hear the word of the Lord. They didn't want to. I know they didn't. I looked in their heart, and I'm going to set myself against them. Now, problem is, they could find some other prophet, and they had a lot of them, that they called prophets, and those prophets would say, hey, don't you worry. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to take Jerusalem. Verse 9, if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. will stretch out my hand upon him, will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And so he says, if there are people who aren't saying what I say, I deceived them. That's quite a thing for God to say. Did you think God would deceive people? You don't really think that about God. But why does he deceive them? Well, we've got a pretty good explanation. 2 Thessalonians, if you look over at 2 Thessalonians, this very thing is talked about. It has to do with the end of time which should be interesting to us all in these days. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm looking at, starting at verse 9, it's talking about the coming of Antichrist. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, Satan uh, will fill this Antichrist with his own power and spirit. And so he's a liar, but he's got power. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
For this cause, God sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so he said, why would God deceive somebody? Why would God send delusion or confusion on people? He said, because they just don't want the truth. They don't love it. They ignore it. They don't want to listen to it. They don't want to hear the truth. And so there's a point where God says, if you're absolutely decided in your heart that you are not going to believe what's true, then I'm going to let you be deluded. I'm going to let you be deceived. I'm going to let you think wrong things. So there's there's a line, and we see it here. He's mentioning God draws a line. Some things that he is not going to take, all right? You come to him and do put an outward show of being religious. You want to hear the word of God like these elders did. And he said, they don't really. I can see inside their heart that they're fakes. And what about the others? He says, uh, over here, he said, they don't love truth. They don't, aren't interested in truth and because they embrace anything that's not true, then I'm going to allow them to be deceived. I'm going to send them delusion. So they can't even figure it out. Won't be able to figure out what's right or wrong because they chose not to find out truth. So um, God cast over them a spirit of delusion, he says, and actually allows them to believe a lie. All right, now, let's go back to Ezekiel. We're going to play hopscotch here uh, because God is about to say what he's going to do to Jerusalem. We've touched on this, but here he's going to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. We're going to pay hopscotch because there's a fascinating thing that we're going to look at here. But let's start at verse 12. Now, Ezekiel 14. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then I will stretch out my hand upon it, will break the staff of bread thereof, and send famine upon it, and cut off men and beasts from it. And so he says, first thing we're going to send is famine. It's going to be famine number one. All right, let me skip down a verse uh, to number uh, 15. I will cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they shall spoil it so that it be desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts. What's happening in, in Israel is everybody's rushing into the cities, and because they go into the cities, the whole countryside is left untended, and so now there's lions and all kinds of dogs and things running wild. The beasts are running wild, and so uh, he says, I'm going to have beasts everywhere. It's going to be unsafe wherever you go. Because there will be wild beasts out there that will tear you to pieces. And skip down to verse 17. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it. Right? And then there's a sword comes He's going to bring on Jerusalem. And then down to verse 19. Uh, Or if I send a pestilence into the land, pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast. And pestilence is disease. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar set siege to Jerusalem. And the first thing that happened was there's a famine because he cut off the food supply of the people in the city. So they started to starve to death. And the wild beast came out and people were dying. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is there with a sword. Eventually, as Ezekiel told us, one third of the population he's going to kill with just a sword. He's got the things of war. Then the last thing that sets in is disease. There's no food. There's wild beasts eating people who have died. 
all right? And there's people everywhere unburied because of the sword. So naturally, disease takes over. And he says, that's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Right? That's how it's going to go. Now, we're going to take a, just a little positive look here. And then we're going to go back and we'll see what we hopscotched over. Verse 22 Yet, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and you shall see their way and their doings. You shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. They shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. You shall know that I have not done this without cause. All that I have done in it, saith the Lord. And he said, so what's going to happen is going to take you 70 years. You're going to be in, in captivity in Babylon. And the king of Persia is going to allow you to go back home. And we know the Bible tells us about Ezra who went first, built the temple. Nehemiah comes, builds the wall, and others come with them. And they reestablish the kingdom. And you say, well, why? God says you're going to feel a lot better when you see that. Well, sure, they're home, but there's something much more important. Once they go into captivity, now why are they there? Because they got idols right in the temple. The great big old idol standing right next to the altar of sacrifice as Manasseh's idol, right? They're inside burning incense to pictures on the wall. We got people out, the ladies out there prostituting themselves in the court of the temple and worshiping Tammuz. And then we got 25 of the leaders standing in front of uh, the, the curtain and facing eastward with their back towards God and worshiping the sun. They worship any, anything they can think of. Whatever you can think of, they'll worship it. All right? Anything that somebody brings along. When they come back... That will never, ever happen again. The Jews, when they come back, are monotheistic. They say there's only one God, and that's Jehovah, and there isn't any more. And they will never go down that road again. Now, put the time frame in your mind. When they come back, who's rising to power? Greece. And what does Greece have for God's? They got everything you can think of. They worship the ocean. They worship the sun. They worship the moon. It goes on and on. And when Greece falls, Rome steps up, and what do you got? Same gods, different name, all right? You got a god of war. They got their own god of war. They worship Caesar. They too worship the ocean. They worship horses. They worship anything. And so we have the world full. And the leading powers in the world full of idolatry, Israel will not budge. They stand alone and they are known throughout the known world as the people who worship that one God. So they turn their back completely on the whole concept of idolatry. Even when idolatry rises to the top and becomes the official government of the ruling nations. Greece and Rome are both filled with idols. Remember, Paul walks through Greece and he's seen this God and that God and this God. And uh, then he sees one temple. You remember what it was? To the unknown God. And Paul preached a great sermon. He said, I'll tell you who the God is that you don't know. I'll tell you, I'll fill you in who that is. So that in in this captivity, they got all those bad ideas out of their head. They got rid of them. Completely and forever, even to this day, Jews are still believe in Jehovah. They may not believe in Jesus, right? That's a problem, right? They believe in Jehovah. They still say there's only one God. So uh, when you see it happen and you realize what happened, then you say, okay, God was right. That's what it took to straighten them out. They had to go through that in order to stop what they were doing. Now, there's a fascinating 
comments in here that I want to take a look at. Back now to verse 13. Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then I will stretch out my hand upon it, will break the staff of bread thereof, send a famine upon it, and cut off man and beast from it. So here's what I'm going to do to Jerusalem. And, verse 14, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. All right, so he says there's... If there was three men, one was Noah, the second one was Daniel, and the third one was Job. If those three men were in Jerusalem, they couldn't deliver it. And it goes down to verse 16. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters. They only shall do deliver, but the land shall be desolate. Verse 18. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters. They shall only be delivered themselves. And then once again in verse 20. Though Noah... Daniel and Job were in it. As I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. So, there was a thought moving through Israel at this time, and that was this. If we only had Daniel back home. I mean, Daniel's a big shot. Daniel is really something. He's three partners, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abendo, to go. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar threw him in the fire, and they walked around like nothing happened. Came out. Didn't even smell like smoke. Well, that got around. And then, of course, eventually Daniel be thrown in a lion's den and stay overnight with the lions and come back out. And these things are spread around through all of Israel. And Daniel, of course, rises to the highest place under, under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar makes him master of the Magi. Or that is, all the wise men in Babylon are under Daniel. So he's like prime minister of Babylon. He rises to the top. And so the people in Jerusalem say, you know what? If we had Daniel back here with us instead of over there, God wouldn't destroy our city. If we only had Daniel. And God said, no. If Daniel prayed, as a matter of fact, if you had Noah there, and Noah prayed, Let's make it three. Job. Those three men, if they were there and they were praying, they could not deliver Jerusalem. They could not deliver Jerusalem. Now, the question that comes up to my mind, I think this is fascinating uh, comments. Uh, what did these men do? Well, let's just take a couple searches around so we can see what they did. You know, maybe, but I want to get it exactly. Genesis chapter 6 is, of course, the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. And here's what was going on. Verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things, fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Alright, so he says, Noah found grace in God's eyes. He found grace in God's eyes. Which means what? That God was looking and searching through the population and he got to the point where there was only one good man left. 
Man, I was cutting it close, I think. It got to the point where there's only one good man left in the world, and that's Noah. And God looked at him, and he said, I want to do something for him. The rest of them, I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to wipe them up. But this guy has caught my eye. God is looking for people like that. And, of course, Noah, we know, saved his family, didn't he? He put his family in... in in the ark and Noah who found grace in God's eyes saved his family how about uh, Daniel what about him Daniel chapter 10 just after our book of Ezekiel is Daniel chapter 10 Now, you remember exactly how God put it. And these are God's words. It's what God said, okay. God said, if Noah prayed for Jerusalem, I wouldn't do it. Now he's about to say, if Daniel prayed for Jerusalem, I wouldn't save Jerusalem. Now watch this. Chapter 10 of Daniel, verse 10. Behold, a hand touched me. This is Daniel. Set me on my knees and on the palms of my hands. So he's laying flat on the ground. And a hand picks him up. Now he's on his hands and knees. And he said unto me, O Daniel, man, greatly beloved. All right, here's a man. What does it God say about him? That he's greatly beloved. Greatly beloved. God is very fond of of Daniel. He's very fond of Daniel. Watch this. Understand the words I speak unto thee and stand upright, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Or he said, You prayed, and the first time you prayed, they sent me to come and answer your prayer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. That would be Satan. All right, that's Satan. Satan said, I'm not going to allow you to answer that prayer. And he had a battle for three weeks. And lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there uh, with the kings of Persia. And I am now come to make thee understand what shall befall this people in the latter days. And so Daniel starts praying, God, I need to understand this. Send somebody right away to help Daniel. Took him three weeks to get there. Matter of fact, Satan went to battle to stop that prayer from being answered. And Michael stepped in and said, he's going to Daniel. And Michael whacked Satan a couple times, apparently, and let this guy go through. This guy can really get prayers answered, can he? If you pray and it takes you three weeks to get there and they won't stop until Michael the Archangel intercedes on your behalf, that's a guy that can get prayers answered, right? He's pretty effective. Who did he save? Well, he saved a whole lot of people. Daniel chapter 2 with his prayers. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17 and Daniel went to his house and made things known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they would desire mercies of God of heaven concerning his secret. Daniel and fellows would not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He went back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've got to pray for an answer. King has said he had a dream, and he can't remember it. So I want it interpreted. And they said, we can't interpret it until you tell us what it is. He says, if you're the real article, you'll tell me what it is, and I won't have to tell you. And they all went home and said, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. Daniel went home and he prayed, God, help me to do that. And he did. And God gave him the answer. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar, here's what your dream was. And as soon as he starts telling, sure enough, that was it. You're right. 
And Daniel, through prayer, gets the answer. He saved not only himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but all the wise men of Babylon were going to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar. So he saved his, uh, his brothers, the wise men. He saved them through his prayers. However, God said, if Daniel prayed for you, I wouldn't even save you. And he's got one more he puts in, add a new dimension to Job. And Job is just before the book of Psalms. Take a look at Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. So it's written in the historical text that he was perfect. You say, well, I never met anybody who was perfect. You never met Job. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Has thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth Perfect and upright man. God said he was perfect. So I'd say he was a pretty good guy. <laughs> because I don't see anywhere else in the Bible that God said anybody was perfect. But Job said Job is perfect. Now you say, I thought everybody was a sinner, and my theology tells me that everybody's a sinner, and you can't change me for that. You're okay. You are, you tell God. You tell him, you said Job was perfect and you were wrong. Go ahead. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. But there's a question here. There's a point that I'm interested in. And, and just to show you why Job was chosen other than his perfection. Uh, chapter uh, 42, the last chapter of the book of Job Verse 7, so it was that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Elipaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you and I have spoken to me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. If you read the book, uh, Job loses everything, and he sits down in a pile of ashes and scrapes himself with a piece of pottery. And his wife says, curse God and die. Look at you. And he said, Lord giveth, and Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He really was a perfect guy. But he had a lot of discussions for uh, 40 chapters. And these guys kept saying things to Job that weren't really true. So now God says, you three guys, you talked all about me, but you didn't say anything that was right. So... Verse 8, take down to you now seven bullocks and seven rams. Go to my servant Job. Offer up yourselves for a burnt offering. My servant Job shall pray for you. For him I will accept. Lest I deal with you after your folly and that you have not spoken to me the thing which is right like my servant Job. So Elipaz, a Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And so uh, Job saved his friends and God said he was perfect. Now, why this to me is so fascinating is a question in my mind that comes up is this. Uh, is it possible to have influence with God? Is it possible that a human could have influence with God? Now, don't shake your head either way yet. Think about this. 
What do I mean by influence? Is it it possible that a man can go to God and have enough influence with him to get what he wants? Now, what is the setting in Ezekiel? Well, the setting in Ezekiel is even if they prayed, right? I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to tear it apart with a sword and with disease and famine and wild beasts. The place is going to be utterly, completely left in rubble and destroyed with nobody left. I'm going to do that. You mean if Daniel prayed, that guy who they sent somebody to answer his prayer for three weeks and Satan had to be knocked out of the way? Yeah. Even if Daniel prayed, he couldn't stop this. How about Noah? Well, Noah found grace in God's eye. God was looking for somebody special, and he found Noah. And he said, even if Noah was there, who saved the human race, right? Even if Noah was there, he couldn't stop me. And even if Job, who after all was perfect, he was perfect. He couldn't stop me. I'm going to destroy this. So, is it possible to have influence with God or not? Hmm. Well, let's look at these guys. These aren't everyday guys. These three guys are towering examples of faith. Noah believed that he should build an ark and it had never even rained before. And God said, you got, we're going to flood the earth and uh, build an ark. So he went and built an ark. Great big, huge, monstrous boat. And he said, I'm going to send you the animals to fill it. And I think at then I would have said, no, how are you going to do that? No, he just built the ark. He believed he had faith, but there's something more I think because faith, if you think about what it is, there's got to be more to it than that. Noah found grace in God's eyes and he's talking to God. How, how much did he talk to God? Make this 10 cubits long. Build a window here. He got regular instructions every day from God how to build the ark. He talked to God a lot. He talked to God regularly. How about Daniel? Did he talk to God? He's the one, right, that the king said, no more praying. We're not going to pray anymore except you pray to me. And what did Daniel do? He opened his window. He got on his knees and he prayed out the window. He said, you can't do that. It's against the law. You can't stop me. I'm talking to God regularly. I'm going to do it every day. So Daniel also talked to God every day. How about Job? Job, it says, every week went and offered sacrifices for his children just in case they sinned. He covered them with that sacrifice just in case they did something wrong. And so these men knew God. And I think the first thing you've got to say is if you're going to have influence with God, if you're really going to have that, it's going to require a very personal relationship. It's going to be a very personal relationship. You've got to be talking to God. You've got to know Him. If you're going to have influence with God, it can't be somebody just steps up and says, here's what I want, God. And I got to tell you that one of the most common things that people come to me and ask me, and this is, I have had this question for years over and over and over again. They say, I pray and it doesn't do any good. I pray and it doesn't help. I get that regularly. That's a regular comment that people make. And I don't say anything to them. I'm talking about it tonight. Is it possible to have influence with God? Are you and me in the place where we can go to God and ask for something and get it? Or does it take somebody special like them? 
Well, whatever they're going to say before we make any conclusions, these fellows knew God personally, face to face, one on one. And I think that's where we're going to go to if we're going to have influence with God. And one of the great things that happens at the end of the world when the judgment day comes is there are going to be people who come. Jesus said, going to be people come and they say, hey, we prophesied in your name. We preached. Did all kinds of stuff. And you remember what God says? I don't know you. Depart from me. I don't know you. There's no personal relationship. So I think that's clear with these three choices. Why did God pick those three? Well, these were men who prayed and accomplished something, right? Is it possible to have influence with God? We're going to put a couple of things on the board here because we've got to get this thought through a little bit. And the first one we're going to put down is this. God is not controlled by men. He is not controlled by anybody. He is not controlled by men. He does what he thinks is right. He does what he thinks is wise. Do we have influence? We don't control God. There isn't anybody that ever was from Adam till right now, this day right now, that say, hey God, I, I need you to do this. Now, come on, let's go. Uh-uh. Nobody has control over God. That's a little different from influence. All right. The second thing I want to put down is God does good because he is good. Obviously we want God to do something good when we approach God and have influence. We have something good in our mind. I hope. It can't ever be the other way. But you think something really good we need to have done. And maybe we can influence God to be good. No, 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 no. He's good before we come to him. He's already good. He's already persuaded to help. He's already there. And so nobody ever went to God and said, I'm going to convince you to do something good. <laughs> that would not make sense. That wouldn't be who God is. So... Uh, we got to hang on to those thoughts because if we're going to say somebody like Daniel can pray to God and, and influence God, the question is, how about you? How about me? Can we do that? Is it possible for us to have influence in God? No. Personal relationship. It goes without saying, all right? And we say, well, God does good because he is good. Right. He doesn't need to be convinced. So <clears throat> how are we going to think about this? Well, let's take a look because, of course, Jesus gives us some wonderful answers like he always does. He really always solves issues like this. Uh, chapter 20 of Matthew. Chapter 20 of Matthew. The question is, can humans reach the point, can you and I, more to the point, can you and I reach a point where we can influence God and talk to him and get something done? All right. Of course... I don't know about you and I, okay? These guys did. So it's not impossible. 
And God himself, this is God talking. He says, if Noah, you know what I think about Noah. You know how I love to cooperate with Noah. You know how him and I talk all the time. Why, if Noah prayed, I couldn't save Jerusalem. That's got nothing to do with Noah. It's got to do with Jerusalem, right? These guys were just bad news. God finally said, I can't, I'm not going to put up with same way with Daniel. I mean, Daniel talks and I talk to him. Every day we have three times a day where we talk. And uh, uh, we were talking when he was walking around among the lions down there. And they were hungry. Because the next day, when they threw the guys in, that threw Daniel in, they pulled Daniel out and they threw those guys in. They said they ate him before they hit the ground. They were hungry. <laughs> you know they have having Daniel for dinner because God and Daniel, right? And Job, the guy that's perfect. Now, here's a story that Jesus tells. I'm going to tell you the story because I don't have time to read it. It's the parable of the workers in the field. And there's a farmer. He owns a crop. He's got a crop to harvest. And so... Uh, he says, I'm going to go down to the marketplace. And in those days, when you wanted a job, you went, stood around the marketplace. Somebody come in and say, hey, I need somebody to pick grapes today. You, 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 and you. So the first thing he went down, he picked a bunch of guys. And he says to them, I'll, I'll give you a day's pay for a day's work. Would you agree to come and work? And yeah, happy to work for a day's pay. All right, so come on to my vineyard. Well, uh, a little bit later in the day, about three hours later, he says, I can see we haven't got enough help. I'll go get some more. So he goes back to the marketplace. He says, you fellows want to work for me today? Says, yeah, we'll work. It's, a, you know, it's not right and early, no, but if you work for me the rest of the day, I'll give you a day's pay. You agree? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it's more than fair. Noontime, same thing. He goes back. Then 3 o'clock, he goes back again. Now, by the time 3 o'clock comes, the good share of the day is gone. And he says to those fellows, look, we've got, we got we to finish this job. Will you work for a day's pay if you work for the next three hours? And they all agree. That's more than fair. It was all agree. So they all go and they work. They finish the harvest. It's time to get paid. And he pays the first group a day's pay. And next one, next one, everybody gets a day's pay. Some of them only worked three hours. Well, the guys in the beginning said, hey, we worked all day. We worked in the heat of the day. These guys didn't come till this afternoon. How's it come they get paid the same as us? How's it come they get paid the same as us? And, and he says, uh, didn't you agree? For a day's pay? Yeah. Now what if I gave a day's pay to the guy that came at noon? Why did I do that? Because you're not fair. The assessment that people make of God all the time is that God's not fair. Why don't I get what I asked for? God's not fair. God's not being fair to me. He's not giving me what I asked for. That's the assessment people make. And he says, verse 15 of chapter 20, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? See, the way to look at it was to say, that poor guy, he wasn't going to get enough money to feed his family that day. Because he didn't get hired till 3 o'clock. Who knows why he didn't get there till 3 or why he didn't get hired. But he's not going to be able to feed his family. But this good man who hired him said, I'll give you a day's pay and you can feed your family tonight if you'll come work for me the next three hours. Out of the kindness of his heart, he overpaid them so that they could live. Now he says to them, am I evil because you think I'm not fair? Didn't you agree for the day's pay? And then he throws this in, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, 
but few are chosen. And he says, here's the problem. God's scale of measuring things is different than ours. As a matter of fact, ours is almost backwards to his. He says, the workers in the field said God wasn't fair. He was actually what? Overly generous, wasn't he? Overly generous. But there is something was that he wasn't fair. So he says, here's the way it is with God's observations and ours. He says, it's going to be the first will be last and the last will be first. We're going to look at somebody and say, that person deserves everything they get. And when they get to heaven, they'll be at the end of the line. And there'll be somebody else that you never thought that you never dreamed would be rewarded right up there in front. Because Jesus says, my scale doesn't work like yours. It's just the opposite. You say, I'm not fair. I'm actually being generous. Now he says, here's my scale. The first shall be last. Whoever you thought was doing great things, I have a whole different opinion. I can see this person really did the right thing. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And then he says this, not only is my scale different, but he said, many are called, but few are chosen. So who's the called ones? Everyone was called in the marketplace to come and work. Right? Many are called. A few got chosen. They had a special work to do. All right? But God's scale is so different that what he offers to us is that, hey, uh, everybody can have this. Now, occasionally, I'm going to give somebody a special job. They'll be chosen to do a special job. Who knows what it was that day in the vineyard? You know, maybe they're the ones uh, doing the paperwork or whatever. You know, somebody got chosen. And he says that the, there are people that can be chosen and God has to do it. But he says everybody was called. So your relationship with God isn't based on, the, well, they got picked and I didn't. You had opportunity too. Everybody did. So you said, I didn't get some special job to do. No. Don't you know how God's scale works? Doesn't work like you think. He says they're called. There are many called. Right? Go over just another page as he tries to fix this in our mind and get us thinking right. Over to uh, chapter, well, it's the wedding feast. Chapter 22. Here the king's having a wedding feast, a marriage for his son. So he goes out, and he's a specialist, a guest, wants you to invite these guests. So he goes to the guests and invites them, and a whole bunch of them go, eh, I don't want to go. I'm not going to your wedding. I'm staying home. So they come back, and they tell the king, well, some of the people wouldn't come. Okay. I want you to go anybody you can find. Go down the street, go down the sidewalk, some guy sitting on a corner, uh, some guy sleeping in a chair, get him up and tell him, come to my feast. So they go and they get anybody they can get to come to the feast. And so now there's a lot of people there at the feast. So something happens here. They get there and everybody comes. Verse 9. Chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 9. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So these servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they could found, and both bad and good. Hmm. Aren't that lucky for you and me? Huh? And the wedding was furnished with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how comest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in the outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are 
chosen. All right. There were called ones on the original guest list. Right? Some came, a lot of them didn't. A lot of them refused to come. They were chosen, the original guest list. So then a whole bunch of them were called. Hey, anybody, just get this place full. Go out and find any old bum you can find. And they did. He said some were bad. And they came. And they filled the place up. Now, at a wedding, and this is different than you and I have ever seen, but at the wedding in those days, particularly a king's wedding, uh, you go there, you dress like this, and they go, eh, well, that's not too good. We're going to fix you up. So they give you a special robe that you wear when you're attending the wedding. The king supplies it for you. So when you go to the wedding, you put on his robe. That way you're dressed in finery for the wedding. So... Uh, <clears throat> Some of the originally invited guests didn't come, so he filled it up with all kinds of riffraff, anybody he could find. And he comes to the wedding, and here's a guy walking around, he looks like me. He says, look at you. Where's your wedding robe? He says he was speechless. Oh, I didn't think I needed one. He said, troll him out. He goes out. Why? As many are called, few are chosen. <clears throat> Why did that guy think he didn't have to put on a wedding robe? Because he thought he deserved it. I don't need that. I'm kind of a big shot. King must like me. I'm here. I don't need the king's clothes on. I'm kind of here all by myself. Listen, in God's kingdom, nobody is there because they deserve to be there. Not one of them. Nobody. And the guy walking around without the king's robe on, I don't need that. It's like a mark of approval of the king. I already got it. King said, no, you don't. Nobody comes here of their own power because they deserve to be here. You don't deserve it. So the question is, is it possible to have influence with God? Well, nobody can walk up and say, hey, look at me, God. You, you kind of got to listen to me. I'm somebody. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you want to have influence with God, that idea has got to go. You cannot say, I'm somebody important. I know God will listen to me. He won't. He'll throw you out on your ear. Now, there were some who were called and didn't come, and some who were chosen and didn't come. But the point is that both the called, as you say, I'd rather be chosen than called. Would you? Chosen people had a special job to do, like in the in the vineyard they were working. So chosen people have special jobs to do, but you can be called. God calls everybody. Many are called. And what's the difference between the called and the chosen? Nothing. They're in the same place. They're working in the same vineyard. As a matter of fact, if you're called and not chosen, it's kind of a little bit free, isn't it? God says, come. I want you to come. Will you come? Yeah, I'll come. So there's a willingness on every person's part, and everybody can stand equal with God. So you want to know who's got influence. Is it possible you can have influence with God? Do you pray intensely, and do you pray regularly? And are you very close with God? Have you got that close relationship that he's looking for? He said, but I'm not important. Who said you had to be? He said he had bad people at the wedding. They were invited. Come on. And they stood in the same place and did the same thing that the chosen ones did. 
You see, our scales are kind of backwards. Because we all think, I didn't want to be one of those chosen ones. I'm happy to be a called one. Happy to be a called one. Let's be, accept that. Here we are. Now, uh, nobody deserves it. No, nobody deserves it. It's not the way God operates. And that's not the way he's going to do things. Chosen ones and others are all come. So, no one is excluded unless they say what? I'm worthy. And they're excluded. You think you're, think you're good enough to have influence with God? No. All can be heard. Some seem to have influence. Like these three. Well, as soon as I ask that question, does anybody have an influence? You all should have screamed, yes, of course, Job and Daniel and Noah did. Yeah, they did, and God's admitting it. He's saying to you, even if those guys, I mean, I've been over backwards for those guys. I did whatever they needed for those guys. Even if they were in Jerusalem, there's a limitation. There's a limitation to our prayers. Some things we cannot pray into being. We wish we could, right? How many times do people say, can I pray my family to heaven? Ah, you pray until your eyes hurt and your knees hurt. You do, don't ever quit. But I don't know. There's some people like even those people couldn't save Jerusalem. Couldn't save it. So there is an influence to be had but God is not under your thumb. He's never under anybody's thumb. When somebody gives you the idea, that I talked to God and he did this, he did that, he did this, just smile, nod your head. Yep, good, good for you. All right. You don't control God. And he said when he does something good, what's he doing? He's doing what's natural to him. He always does what's good. Well, something I had happen to me wasn't good. I'll bet you he made it work for good. All things work together for good. To what? Them that love God and that are called according to his purpose. Many are called for the purposes of God. And so you can have influence with God. Uh, don't think you get it easy. Don't think you're in charge. Don't think you're a big shot. But you just pray. Some of the most influential people that I've known, a little tiny lady sat right there. Sat right there. Hazel Howard. She prayed, man, she prayed. She prayed this into being. She prayed this into existence. She said to me, when you have a church, I'm going to be there. And I said, I'm not going to have a church. She said, when you do, I'll be there. She believed before I ever did. Okay? And she prayed those things into existence. She was praying for me every day. She knew God pretty well, see? says, you drive by my house on your way to work at 7 o'clock, and I pray for you. I watch you go by at 5.30, and I pray for you again. I pray for you every day, twice a day. I didn't know that. She was praying for me for years before I knew it. Before I knew anything. Before I did anything, she was praying for me. So I think people like that have a lot of influence with God. If you saw her, she could hardly walk. She walked... She had a birth defect. And she stumbled around and she walked and her speech was slurred from her birth defect. God didn't have any trouble understanding. Huh? So, yeah, people I know have influence with God. And if it wasn't so, God wouldn't have said that. God brought that up. To try and entice us. Say, how would you like to be somebody that had influence with God? Here's some who did. 
And here's what they did. And so I got to stop. I didn't even get past the first chapter. Uh, but I think that's an exciting thought that God introduced into the passage to entice us to say, you want this is something you want? You want influence with God? You want to be able to talk to God and get your prayers answered? It can happen. There are limitations to it. Even Daniel couldn't stop the destruction of Jerusalem. But God mentioned him because, wow, God said, I like to help him. I like to do what he's asking me. Same with Noah. I helped him build a great big old huge boat. Made no sense at all till it rained. <laughs> and Job, man, that guy's perfect. And you can't argue with God. And he saved his friends by praying for them. Thank you. I got to stop. I'm out of time.